Believe in yourself, cause it starts with you, and then everyone else will believe you too. And if it looks like you're the only believer around, just keep on. Our guest this week grew up in St. Paul, Minnesota, and attended the University of Minnesota from 1965 to 67 for political science, and he left to enlist in the U.S. Army. From 1970 to 71, he served in the U.S. Army as an officer while living with, fighting with, and training Vietnamese soldiers. And from 73 to 75, he served the Cambodian people. In 1987, he was ordained a Jesuit priest. And since 2000, he's been a professor of philosophy at Boston College. His name, Father Paul McNellis. And I'm Jack Rasula, and this is Anything is Possible on 760 WJR. I'm Jack Rasula. This is Anything is Possible, and we're talking to Father Paul McNellis, who for the last 21 years has been a professor of philosophy at Boston College. Father, welcome. A real honor to have you. Thank you, Jack. As we embark on a new year, and hopefully a less crazy year, can you please lead us in an opening prayer, Father? Yes, I can. Heavenly Father, as we prepare to celebrate the birth of your Son, draw us closer to you, increase our desire to serve your Son, and turn our lives over to you. We ask this through Christ, your son, our Lord. Amen. All right. Let's talk about your childhood, your mom and your dad. You were the eldest of nine kids in Minnesota. That's talk right. Talk about mom and dad and your childhood. Um, well, it, it, with nine children, the oldest of nine, I, I kind of, I almost only half jokingly when I applied to enter the Jesuits, told people that I had already dealt with every pastoral problem in the family family except murder and kidnapping by the time I, I entered. Um, but nine children is a lot of sacrifice, and, and, um, and that shows their generosity. You know, I, I was raised a Catholic. Um, there was a time in early childhood, we lived in a rural area where we weren't going to church all the time, and, but, but we, all, we all got back on track as a family and when I was in sixth grade. Um, yeah, and I, I learned I learned to love the church and and how to pray from my parents. You know that I didn't know until I don't know I was in my twenties, I guess, that there was such a thing as a family vacation. You know that, or yeah, we had vacations where my my father could catch up on all the things he was he had promised my mother to do around the house. And, and I also didn't know you could have, until I was in the army, that you could have anything for breakfast besides oatmeal. So, <laughs> so yeah, it was, it was a great privilege um, you know, to have that many siblings. Um, taught me a lot about life. It, it does every day. And uh, I am very grateful to my parents, parents for all the sacrifices they made to make that possible. John Paul II, in his... Um, visit to Washington, D.C. many years ago, he, he said in a homily that the greatest gift that parents can give their children is to give them brothers and sisters. And I, 
I agree with that. All right. You've always walked to the tune of a different drum. You've spent a couple of years at University of Minnesota, political science. And then in 1968, that was the height of the revolt, the rebellion against the war, all of the, you know, the Democratic Convention in Chicago, Woodstock. You, so many of the kids our age were going to Canada, get out of the draft, and you leave college to go to the draft. Why? Yeah, that's an interesting question. You know, I um, I do think that that the protests, it was a bit of a class divide there. You know, in, in other words, um, my high school friends, none of them were going to Canada. They didn't have a problem with military service, you know, that, and initially we thought that those big protests that would East and West Coast kind of thing, you know. Um, but yes, I, I do remember when I was, I was in, in OCS, Office of Candidate School, that one guy came back from a leave. He had been to Washington, D.C., and he had to, uh, the group of people who were going to stone him, he had to run to escape, you know. And he, and he told us, he said, don't wear your uniform when you're, um, uh, when you go home, you know. But I also remember um, a special forces exercise where we jumped into Montana and we had a day off in Helena, Montana, and you you couldn't pay for a taxi taxi cab, you couldn't pay for your own drink and everything. It was, it was like, they stopped and say, you know, where do you want to go? I, I said, I don't have any money to taxi driver. So they, you don't have to pay, you're a, you're a soldier. We, so there, there were those divides even within the country, you know, and and um, the 1972 election, I think, kind of showed that. Uh, but getting back more specifically to your question, you know, I, I had good friends um, from high school or early college. I was getting letters from them. They're already in Vietnam. And uh, and I and I had followed the war. I read a lot about it. And and at one point I said. Um, it's not right for me, for, for them to be there um, serving my country. And I, I always have thought that, that we were right to be there. Not every single thing we did was right, but we were right to be there. We were on the right side. And I said, um, it's not right for me to be safe in a classroom when they're taking that kind of risk. So, Speaking of being on the right side, when your fellow soldiers went over there, they were with other Americans. In 70 and 71, you served in Nam, and you lived with, you fought with, and you trained Vietnamese soldiers. How yes. and why? Well, the the why is that's where I was assigned. That was, you know, that wasn't that wasn't a choice for me. But you know, President Nixon had begun the so-called Vietnamization process in 1969. So American troops were coming out very, very fast. And so I was assigned to a recon company with the South Vietnamese Army Regiment up along the, the Cambodian border. That's what they most needed. And uh, it did, it, you know, I wasn't the only one that got an assignment like that. But but those of us who did have that assignment, uh, Special Forces people or MACV people, which I was, or Military Assistance Command for Vietnam, um, I realized later we had a much different in some ways, much different view on the war. 
for precisely the reason that you mentioned. You know, I summed it up this way at the time. Um, when American soldiers were over there, I don't know, say with the 101st or something like that, or, or the Marine Corps, when they said we, they tended to mean the other Americans. The other advisors and myself, when we said we, we included the Vietnamese we were living and fighting with. So I, I lived on a base that uh, the 4th Infantry Division had had before, but then this regiment of the South 22nd South Vietnamese Division took it over and it was basically the soldiers lived with their families, the Vietnamese, you know, that was the war was in their country. And so like 5,000 um, South Vietnamese soldiers and family on that base. And I went to the field with a, a recon company, which is about, given how many at any given time had malaria, it was usually about 30 that, that went to the field and I went with them. We're talking to Father Paul McNellis, when we come back, we'll ask him about the plight of the Vietnamese people in the early 70s. And I'm Jack Rasool, and this is Anything is Possible on 760 WJR. Welcome back to Anything is Possible. I'm Jack Rasool. We're with Father Paul McNellis who served in Vietnam in 1970-71 while he lived with, fought with, and trained Vietnamese soldiers. Talk about the plight of the Vietnamese citizens during that war, Father. Uh, let's see, I'll, I'll, I'll include in my response, not just the time I was with them, um, the South Vietnamese soldiers from so from 70, 71, but also when I went back as a reporter, because I I went back to the same area. Um, and I, I think by 1972, uh, the United States had really pretty much accomplished their objectives. I, I remember a um, Vietnamese man telling me, I think he was in his mid 40s or whatever, and he'd taking a motorcycle from the DMZ, a ride you know, all the way down to Saigon. And he said, this is the first time in my life I've been able to do that, that the country's been that secure. I didn't do that at night, but you could do it during the day. Um, one of the things that's always bothered me in, in popular culture, Hollywood, whatever, is you know, that Vietnamese, South Vietnamese were betrayed as not willing to fight for their country or kind of, I, they were wonderful soldiers, very brave soldiers that, and, and all during our commitment there, their, their casualties and, and sacrifices were far greater than ours. Um, you know, one of the heartening things I've, I've seen is there are some, I know of one in Avon, Connecticut, some VFW posts that are starting to make contact with South Vietnamese veterans in this country. And uh, and each side is very glad that they that they have made that contact. You know? All right, you come back home in '71 to to a lot of rebellion, and then you decide to go back as a stringer. What's a stringer, and why did you go back? Well, a stringer is is somebody that I, I at various times I work for Associated Press or or UPI United Press International, which, which doesn't exist anymore. And um, 
a stringer isn't hired out of New York. You're, you're hired in the country and they, and it's piecework. Like they'll pay you for a story or photographs or whatever. Um, and then uh, they don't assign you, you go where you want. So I, I went back where I was as an infantryman and I would send them things and, a, and AP ran most of my stuff. But one of the reasons for going back, Jack, was um, I would be getting letters from South Vietnamese commanders I had worked with and I'd read Time or Newsweek and I couldn't make sense of, you know, the news reports didn't jive with what I was hearing from these Vietnamese commanders. So, so my main reason for going back was I said that, yeah, you know, this is one of the most important historical events in my lifetime right now. I want to see for myself what's going on. And I also kind of had a, a sense that um, when I left, you know, as a U.S. infantryman, got out of the army, it was over for me, but it wasn't over for them. You know, it was entering a very crucial point for them. And uh, I wanted to be with them. It wasn't as military than as a reporter. And, and so I could see for myself what was going on. All right. From 73 to 75, you go to Cambodia and be with the Cambodian people. Once again, walk into the tune of a different drummer. Why? Well, I'd come back and I'd, I'd, I took an intensive Vietnamese language course, course at Southern Illinois University in Carbondale, Illinois, with the intention of going back to Vietnam. Uh, as a relief worker or something like that. And I had also applied to the Southeast Asian Studies Program at Cornell, which was the best of its kind in, in the world, I think, at the time, probably still is, I, um, and was accepted there. And one of the places I, I asked to go back and work in Vietnam was Catholic Relief Services. And so I just had six months intensive Vietnamese language, you know, and, and so they called me and they said, actually, we need somebody in Cambodia, not in Vietnam. Would you be willing to go? And so I said, well, give me two weeks to think about it. And um, uh, after two weeks and an interview with the, uh, a priest in the Midwest who, who worked for them, uh, I decided that if I went to Cornell, I was sitting in the library and I was reading about what was going on in Cambodia or Vietnam. I really wouldn't be able to study because I'd know that I'd had a chance to go there rather than the library. And so I said, no, I, I have to do this. And then, so I put Cornell on hold and went there. And then my boss was shrewd enough. If you say you wanted six months or if you wanted three months or whatever, he'd say, yeah, 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 just come. But he, but he knew that once we were there, that we were all in for the long haul. As you could see that, you know, the roof was falling in on, on Cambodia and we weren't just going to walk away until we had to. So, so I was there for a year and a half. What's the single biggest thing you learned from 70 to 75 from the Vietnamese and the Cambodian people, Father? Oh, boy. Um, the single biggest thing. <laughs> um I did learn something I, I, something very important about my relationship to God with this Vietnamese commander, but I, I think you want to bring that up a little later. No, no. Let's talk about that now. Let's talk about that yeah. now. Well, uh, you know, one of the things that, that 
one of the reasons I, I, some of your listeners can you know detect a kind of a bond between veterans and, and especially combat veterans is that you know when you when you share that kind of risk together, all the superficial things are stripped away and you, you get to know each other very quickly and and who you can trust and who you can't. And so it was like that for me with the South Vietnamese troops, you know, and there's a young commander about my age, but he'd already been in combat like 10 years, you know, for the South Vietnamese, you were in until you were too badly wounded to go back to the front or until you lost or were killed, you know, or until, or until you won. And, um, so we shared a lot, and and I was very close to him. Um, he really was like a brother uh, to me. And I was with him when he died. We were in a, I mean, I mention this only because I, I think there's something universal in this that might help some of your, uh, help some of your listeners. So we were caught, it's not exactly an ambush, but you know, North Vietnamese soldier, was in the bushes, let like 12 people walk by waiting for the commander. And he, they got him, but not me. All right. And, uh, you know, I'd, I'd never, never lost anybody. I love that much um, at that point in my life. And I think I spent about two or three years just praying to God saying, you know, why him? Why him? Why not me? You know, he was a better man than I. He's a much better man than I. And somewhere along year two or year three, I, I got an answer is anyone who prays knows, you know, you're not hearing a voice, but, but you know, you, you know, when you got an answer, you know where it's coming from. And so when I was saying, why him rather than me, he was a better man than me. The answer I got was, you're, that, you're right. He was a better man than you. And that's why you need more time. Well, that was... 19, late 1970, 1971, I'm still working on that more time. All right. So the, the, the turning point for me, it was, I mean, I think God can reach anybody in any circumstances, but sometimes stubborn people, they have to put them in extraordinary circumstances and kind of hit them over the head. And so what I knew from that day on that, that didn't point me necessarily toward the the priesthood or anything, but I knew that if my life made any sense at all, it had to be serving Christ, uh, Jesus Christ. Whatever the vocation was, it wouldn't be honest or have any meaning unless I was serving him. And in 1977, our guest, Father Paul McNellis, realized his vocation was to become a priest, and he became a Jesuit. When we come back, we're going to ask him, why a Jesuit? And I'm Jack Rasul, and this is Anything is Possible on 760 this is Anything is Possible. I'm your host, Jack Prasula. We're with Father Paul McNellis, who in 1987 was ordained a Jesuit priest. Father, every Jesuit I've ever met is phenomenally bright. Now, some of them are a little misdirected, okay? Uh, but it, do you get some special pill when they ordain you? Do the, is it water and the holy water? How do you explain that every one of you are so bright? Well, Jack, I, I'd say you haven't met enough of us. <laughs> you, you've been for, maybe the Holy Spirit's been 
screening them for you. So <laughs> you hide a lot of them. We have a long, long period of, of formation and education, and, and my the professors, the Jesuit professors I had um, at Fordham and in Rome, they were remarkable men. You know, and not only as as teachers, but as as examples themselves. And I'm very grateful for that. And I think for me, um, Ignatius himself was a kind of the main example, you know, that that he was a soldier and he was, you know, during the convalescence, uh, after being wounded by a cannonball, you know, he was reading the lives of the saints and stuff. And and for me, reading his life, um, well, there's, there's a saying, it was a saying attributed to him, it's probably apocryphal. But um, it fits and it helped me at the time. It, supposedly, Ignatius said, I consider that I never left military service. I've just come under the command of God. Well, I could, un I could understand that, you know, that um, the way the society is organized, it's, um, uh, it's tailored for action. You know, we, the, the, um, the governance of the society and everything. And, and so I, my big problem about my initial problem about the Jesuits was the, the vow of obedience. Said, you mean you just go any place in the world, they send you at any time. And uh, the more I thought about it, the more I said, you know, all of your arguments against it are really arguments on why you need a vow like this. <laughs> <laughs> so um, Ignatius of Loyola, the founder of the Jesuits, there's this famous Ignatian spiritual exercises. What, what is it? Yes, I, you know, and I would encourage people, it's not a book to be read. Now, I wouldn't recommend it for spiritual reading, whatever, but it's really designed, you know, it's a, it encapsulates Ignatius's own experience of trying to discern the best way to follow God and the best way to serve him. And Ignatius made a lot of mistakes, and he learned from them. And so the spiritual exercises really are, it's more a guide for, for the one directing you in the spiritual exercises, which is a, a retreat. He, he saw it as a 30-day retreat, but it can be adapted uh, for shorter periods of time, for a week or a weekend or whatever. And I'd like to emphasize this. Um, it's, you know, it's not the ecclesiastical version of Mao's Little Red Book. You know, there, here's Ignatius's spiritual exercises or whatever. It's for the whole church. It's not just for Jesuits. And Pope after Pope has said that. And it's, it's, uh, its goal is to help you realize at a deep level how much God loves you as revealed in Jesus Christ and increase your desire to serve him and then turn your life over to him and see where that leads. In 1863, that's 160 years ago. The Jesuits founded Boston College. And since 2000, um, you've been a professor of philosophy at Boston College. Tell us about Boston College. Yeah, I'd like to correct one thing, Jack. I'm not officially a professor here. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a lecturer, a teacher. Okay. So I, I, don't, I didn't go through the tenure process and stuff like that. 
but they made room for me in the classroom. So does that mean you get paid more or less because you're just a lecturer? Well, I oh, probably less, but I never see my paycheck. It goes it goes to the province of the community. You know? so, I understand. OK, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. What, what was the question again? What, Boston College. Tell us about Boston College. Well, I feel I was teaching in Rome at the Gregorian University and some health problems from Vietnam caught up with me and I had to come back here for medical treatment. And um, at, at that time, it became clear that I wouldn't be going back immediately to Rome. So, so Father Leahy, the president of Boston College, he said, well, you know, why don't you teach here? And so I'm very, I was very grateful for that opportunity. And that was when I started teaching. I came back in 99 from Rome. I started teaching in 2000. I remember it well because 9-11 was my second year here, you know. Uh, and at first, I say for that first year, I, I, I missed Rome terribly and kind of the, I'd, I, my classroom there, I'd, I'd have students from 30 different countries. You know, that's not quite what you get at Boston College. It, um, but I, so I've been teaching here since 2000. Um, I think I'm right where, God wants me to be. I think I'm a reasonable, a halfway decent teacher. I hope I can do this a while longer. And right. it is a lot easier to teach in English than in Italian. You're being far too humble. You have a true, everybody that's been in your class says, Father Paul, his true passion is teaching. Father, what do all great teachers have in common? Well, I think... In my case, I had some some good examples, my own teachers, but I, I think deep down you have to love your students. That doesn't mean you have to tell them what they want to hear, you have to tell them what they, in your judgment, they need to hear. But it's not about you and having followers as students or whatever. It's, it's trying to do with God's help at a very important time in their lives, trying to offer them what they most need. Um, become good adults, good Christians. Um, yeah, it's been, um, it's been a wonderful, wonderful 20 plus years so far, you know. I learned from my students too. And, you know, I, I have students now that I had as freshmen that I've married and I've baptized some of their children and everything. So I, it kind of feels like the grandfather stage of my priesthood at this point. I wouldn't have had that experience uh, so much in Rome, you know, because most of the people I taught were religious. Okay, speaking of telling them what they need to hear, you're legendary for your freshman class entitled Perspectives One. In a couple minutes, <laughs> give us the Cliff Notes version on that course. Yeah, I, I'm Jack, you're making me uncomfortable with this legendary stuff. I, I does it. There's a couple of students in my current class who wouldn't agree with you. <laughs> no, it's it's a wonderful course. The, the main course I teach, um, it's Perspectives on Western Culture, and it's a kind of great text program. Um, it's six hours a week. It runs the whole year. And that's one of the strong points of it. In other words, it's six hours a week for two semesters. I spend time with, with freshmen. And, you know, by the end of the year, we know each other pretty well and you know we start with 
Sophocles, Plato, Aristotle, the Bible, Aquinas, Augustine, Machiavelli, Hobbes, Locke, Rousseau, Pascal, um, Freud, kind of, you know, over the course of a year. Um, and one of the things I've noticed, some of my colleagues and, and I've noticed over the last 20 years, that the students read differently over the last 20 years. And I, I think some of it, they can learn to read primary texts. They're not used to it. They find it difficult. And I, I think a lot of screen time and they, they, when they use their phones, they skim rather than um, read closely. But they, they, you can teach them how to read primary text closely. And once they start to get the hang of it, they, they like it. They, they really do prefer it to secondary sources. And actually, some of them prefer a printed book to a tablet or things like that. You, could, you know, you can sit under a tree on a good fall day and have a conversation with Socrates with the book in hand. We're talking to Father Paul McNellis. When we come back, he watched as we exited Nam in 74, 75. Well, recently we exited Afghanistan. And when we come back, we're going to ask him about that exit. And I'm Jack Rasul, and this is Anything is Possible on 760 WJR. Jack Rizzula, host of WJR's Anything is Possible, the weekly radio visit, brings his 15 years of inspirational storytelling to hardcover. With God, anything is possible. Anything is possible. 15 of Jack's more than 750 tales of defeating odds and achieving the extraordinary. Like Bob Woodruff, whose job covering the war in Iraq nearly cost him his life. And Nick Vujicic, the limbless evangelist who has stunned millions with his message of acceptance and grace. With God, anything is possible. Order now while signed copies are still available at trustinusllc.square.site. That's trustinusllc.square.site. And as Jack says, Make it a great week because with God, anything is possible. Spohol. I'm Jack Rasula. This is Anything is Possible. We're talking to Father Paul McNellis, who's taught philosophy at Boston College since 2000. Father, our Afghanistan exit in August of the past year. Talk to our young heroes and how they should react to that, Father. Well... I don't know. I, I'll leave it to them to decide how, how they react, but I, I'll give you my own reaction. I, I was, I, I don't think anybody can look at the way we left Kabul in August and, and feel anything but shame as an American. I remember saying, um, writing to a friend, I said, you know, for the first time in my life, I feel ashamed of being an American. And uh, now I think that there were, I think that war went on far too long and it kind of lost its way. Uh, but that was that was a dishonorable way to leave and betrayal of an ally and the soldiers. And I remember seeing um, an Afghan vet said at the time, he said, I, I finally understand the Vietnam vets. It, we felt kind of the same thing in the way, in the way we, we got out. 
like, like this was the most spectacularly shameful episode I ever recall. And, and so I was getting emails from Vietnam vets that I've been in contact with and BC students that were, went through ROTC and are now, uh, you know, now serving. And I do think, and what I tried to say to some of them is, there is something honorable about your service, even though there was nothing honorable about the way we left. That's kind of a hard sell, but I think it's, I think it's true. I, one of the remarkable things in my experience in dealing with other vets is that they're one of the last groups in our society that still have some idea of what honor means. Yeah, you don't hear that word very often. Uh, some years ago, there, there was a, I worked in a men's prison over the last 20 years and around Veterans Day that the prisoners wanted a, a mass for veterans. And I said, well, should I single, single I, I, of course I said, yes, but should I single out the veterans during the mass? And they said, no, Father, I think you shouldn't do that. Um, we're proud of our military service, but we're not proud of being here in prison. So the mass will just be fine. And then uh, after mass, they come up one-on-one -on -one individually and said, you know, Father, I was in the Air Force or I was in the Army. Well, that's, that's one of the things I admire about about veterans, those prisoners who obviously had screwed up or they wouldn't have been in prison, and they all admitted that. They were still proud of their military service and thought as veterans, they shouldn't have been in prison, but they were. And uh... All right. Um, you gave a speech on Veterans Day, November 11th, 2021. And you talked about looking up to other people. And you said in that speech, I believe, quote, Soldiers, like all Christians, are in, but not of, the world. What do you mean by that? Well, I, I mean that every human being, whether he knows it or not, is created for eternal life with God. That's true, every human being. If you're a Christian, then to no credit of your own, just a gift of faith, you know that, that that's your ultimate gift. That's your ultimate destiny, excuse me. The faith is the gift. Your ultimate destiny is eternal life with, with God. This isn't even people who don't share faith. I get some inklings of this. You, know, you talk to parents at the birth of a, their first child or whatever. They say it's a miracle. And, um, and they have the sense that it's their child, but ultimately belongs to God. Well, that's true of all of us. Speaking of children, talk to us about Today's students, this Gen Z generation. Yeah, I don't, I don't like those letters that journalists come up with X, Y, Z. I, I, I lose track of that. Um, I enjoy teaching them very much. Uh, I, I worry about them in, in the sense that I, I think the older generation has um, saddled them with unsustainable debt, and that, and therefore. You know, decisions about marriage and family may be postponed beyond what they want. Uh, the last year and a half has produced a lot of anxiety within a lot of uncertainty uh, with that. Every, every school across the country sees this. Uh, but they still have the ba same basic desires and loves that any human being does, you know. And, and uh, so the task of the teacher is with the help of great thinkers through time just to get them to read 
those texts and though um, Socrates and Plato and the, the prophets and the gospel and Aquinas and Augustine, they'll get through. There's a lot of fear, a lot of despair. Everybody hopes that 2022 is less crazy than 2021. As we start this new year, how best to get hope in my life? Well, we're talking now just a, a couple of days before Christmas. I think that's a good reminder of how much God cares for us. He's in charge. That we, um, He's given us in, in this life, which is... Very short, actually, if you step back and take the long view. He's given us something to do, a way to serve him and a way to serve our fellow men and women here on earth. And if we remember, not, it's, you can't be aware of it every second of every day, but you take time for prayer every day and remember um, that everyone I meet is going to live forever. And so the smallest, littlest things you do in life have eternal consequences. That's not so much a great burden as a great opportunity. No, there's, there's nothing in daily life so small or so um, mundane that it, it can't in some way be a service of God and our neighbor. Father Paul McNellis, you are a shining example of an honorable soldier for Christ. Keep up the great work. Thank you, Jack. Please join us next Saturday. Until then, I'm Jack Prasoul. Thanks for listening and make it a great week because with God, anything is possible. Spawn. Believe in yourself.